You're listening to Scottish Independent Podcasts and this week's podcast is called Scotland's Energy Strategy. Is it leading the way or is it sitting on the fence? And this is an episode of Rising Clyde. Our host is Ian Bruce and Ian's guest this week is Mary Church of Friends of the Earth Scotland. Uh, they're going to be talking about the Scottish Government's new energy strategy and just transition plan. Where does it need to go further and faster? And how about hydrogen and carbon capture storage? Are they the solutions that we need? Hello and welcome to Independence Live. I'm Ian Bruce in Glasgow and this is Rising Clyde, the Scottish Climate Justice Show. On the 10th of January this year, the Scottish Government finally released for public consultation its draft energy strategy and just transition plan. We've been waiting for the document for a year or so because this is the one that should set a course for Scotland to transition away from fossil fuels, especially North Sea oil and gas, towards a genuinely sustainable alternative within this decade. So does it do that? That's what we're talking about on this episode of Rising Clyde. And to help us do that, we're very happy to have with us Mary Church, Head of Campaigns at Friends of the Earth Scotland. Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. I wonder, could we start with just a practical question? What does it mean that this is being put out to public consultation? I mean, how does that work? And is it possible that the document could change substantially or is that unlikely? That's a good question. And it's one of the quite important things to understand about this document and I think has been possibly slightly misrepresented in some of the, the, the coverage of the energy strategy. And I think that's to do with the slight divergence between the way uh, some of the questions that are raised in the consultation document were presented as sort of positions when the cabinet secretary made his statement to parliament about it. So you had the statement in parliament on the 10th of January and Michael Masters and the, the CABSEC kind of spoke as if some of these decisions had already been made. So he strongly implied that the Scottish government had already taken a position against, uh, you know, presumption against new oil and gas licenses. But when you look at the, the energy strategy, just transition plan document, it's very clearly a consultation document which is asking whether the Scottish Government should take a position on uh, new oil and gas licences amongst other things. So it clearly is a consultation document. I think it's safe to say that um, the draft really sort of skirts some of the, the, the tricky issues, right? It dodges the big questions, you know, questions that we think the science has already made clear what the answer is to and you know, puts it out for consultation. So we would we would hope very much, I mean, we would expect very much to see uh, elements of this change and be firmed up in in the final draft. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of things that that the strategy doesn't do that we think it should do, and we would very much hope it would change on those fronts too. Okay, let's let's begin to look at in some detail at some of the more contentious issues, and obviously that key one of whether or not. Uh, you know, the Scottish Government will um, approve or support new oil and gas projects. Um, that's obviously absolutely at the centre of this strategy. And as you say, it's, it's being put out there for consultation. 
but uh, can you explain a bit more what that really means? I mean, I think the key passage is is this one, and I'm not sure that it's that easy to understand for ordinary, you know, ordinary mortals. You know, whilst licensing is reserved to the UK government, the Scottish government is consulting on whether, in order to support the fastest possible and most effective just transition, there should be a presumption against new exploration for oil and gas. What does that presumption mean? Yeah, so good question. And I wonder if I could just go back a couple of steps as well to, to maybe say a bit more about what this document actually is. So it's a revision. So the Scottish government has an energy strategy that was, you know, its first energy strategy was published in 2017. And this is a revision of it. Plus it's, you know, tacked on this just transition plan element to deliver on its commitments to deliver sort of sectoral just transition plans for um you know specifically for the big sectors that are going to need to make that transition uh to the low carbon economy now energy is broadly reserved to westminster so that's quite an important part of this so offshore oil and gas licensing coal mining nuclear energy supply and transmission all of these things are reserved to westminster although as your listeners probably know um uh devolved powers particularly planning powers can be used to give effect to the Scottish government's own energy um, policy. So that's how we have the effective moratorium on nuclear power, for example. And it's how we initially had a moratorium on fracking before those powers were transferred um, to the Scottish government. So the energy strategy covers both devolved and reserved areas. That's an important thing to sort of know about this, this document. And it goes you know, the, the 2017 version also covered devolved and reserved areas, but this one goes further in sort of making propositions for what the Scottish government thinks the UK government should do in key areas um, of energy, particularly on oil and gas uh, licensing. So, yeah. so what exactly is the position here? Because as you say, the 2000 before in the 2017 they had this you know quite they were they were in favor basically of exploiting as much gas and oil as possible right maximum utilization or whatever the expression was yeah? now uh, or after cop 26 first minister nicola sturgeon came out actually quite surprisingly initially but quite clearly it seemed at the time against cambo the the new oil field for cambo so that seemed like a change in policy. And then since then, they seem to have been sort of somewhere in the middle. It's not nobody's quite clear whether they are or they aren't. And they keep talking about, you know, new criteria, you know, climate checkpoints and things that have to be, you know, completed before they're, you know. So it, it's quite confusing to me anyway, exactly what their position is, whether they're going to oppose or they're not going to oppose. Yeah. And I think it's not just you who is confused. I think this is really confusing across the board. Um, and it, you know, that confusion allows space for this sort of contradiction and many different interpretations of the Scottish government's position to exist within the Scottish government and within the SNP. So you had even, you know, the the, the leader of um, the SNP in the House of Commons, uh, you know, in the same week that the document was published, saying, "I see no reason why Canva shouldn't go ahead." So there's this sort of license, you know, license. Um, for confusion and for, you know, interpreting whatever you like out of the situation as it is. So that's, you know, that's something that's clearly got to change between this first draft and um, the final draft. And I think that confusion has 
uh, arisen, you know, for a number of reasons. One, this, you know, what I mentioned earlier, the way that the cabinet secretary spoke in parliament made it sound like decisions had already been taken. But when you look at the document itself, it's very clear um, that, you know, these questions are, are, are really up for consultation. So they're being asked. So the key sort of areas on, on oil and gas is, as you said, this sort of presumption against new oil and gas licensing. Now, just to be clear what that actually means. So that wouldn't that wouldn't stop Canberra going ahead. It wouldn't stop Rosebank going ahead. It wouldn't stop Jackdaw going ahead. All that. So the new licensing rounds that the UK government announced towards the end of last year, where it expects to issue upwards of 100 licenses for new exploration, that would be a presumption against new licensing rounds like that. OK, for the reserves that we think are out there, but we don't quite know how much are in them and, and no company has the rights to explore uh, and exploit them at this point in time. The other thing that the consultation document asks and that the, the CABSEC proposed in, in Parliament the other day is whether or not we should be looking, the Scottish Government should be looking to take a position that says, actually, of the existing licences, um, we need to you know, roll back on those sooner than the sort of natural, or well, not natural, but the economic uh, end of North Sea oil and gas extraction. So it's it's uh, conducted some analysis and it's got some figures in there that show that by 2050, North Sea oil and gas extraction would be something like 3% of 1999 levels. So it's kind of saying, you know, and, and, and everybody knows, you know, that the industry is in decline anyway, but do we need to say that we should put a stop to extraction um, sooner than that sort of natural decline and how soon should that be if we do and does that mean winding down existing licenses so saying so this is where you get to the saying no to cambo saying no to rosebank saying no to jackdaw and any other fields that are already under exploration but have not yet been developed you know aren't producing economically um yet so those are the two big areas up for discussion in the consultation document and obviously because the scottish government doesn't actually have the power to you know it doesn't have power over offshore oil and gas licensing it would be a position that they you know it'd be the morally correct position obviously to take it would be a position that they take to sort of influence within the uk to influence the uk government stance and on the global stage obviously it would also be a position that they would then have to translate into other areas of domestic where the scottish government does have uh, control and power so for example there are a number of funds through which the Scottish government supports the offshore oil and gas industry. So logically, if it takes this presumption against, it needs to bring those funds in line and, and, and hopefully direct them to, you know, the just transition. And of course, in terms of thinking about what, you know, what would be consistent with, you know, assuming they went for the sort of Paris Agreement uh, goal of 1.5 aligned phase out of oil and gas, if they went for a goal around that, which, you know, in our understanding of the science is this decade right it's within this decade so there's a there's a really um useful study by um the Tyndall uh center on, on on climate change that looks at a kind of a fair shares approach to um oil and gas phase out and it looks at things like um it doesn't go too much into the historical responsibility of of different producer nations for causing the crisis although obviously Scotland and the UK do have a significant 
historical responsibility for causing the crisis. So it doesn't look too much at that area. But what it does look at is, you know, how much of um, a, a particular producer nation's economy is sort of tied up with and dependent on the oil and gas industry. You know, what is and you know what is the GDP of a country? How wealthy is that country? And, you know, what would the impacts of transitioning over different time frames be for that country's economy and obviously, you know, the well-being of its own citizens? And it finds that the UK and obviously Scotland as part of that um, are in this sort of first movers category. They must be in that first movers category of phase out by, you know, they propose a date of 2031 for the UK to do its fair share of um, uh a, a chance of meet, you know, a two-thirds chance of meeting the 1.5 degrees target, and they also and look at. Just to be clear, Mary, that so that means both no to any new exploration, the first yes. point you made, and Absolutely. no to developing any of those ones that are sort of in the pipeline, as it were. Is that right? It means no to developing any of the ones that are already licensed, but not currently producing. It also means looking at um, uh, licenses that are under, sorry, uh, areas that are under license and producing and saying, actually, we need to stop production sooner in some of these. So it means- yeah. it's, there's, it's, there's three levels then, basically, yeah, right? No new exploration, no new licenses, no, yeah. no development of the ones that are you know, in development. Yeah? yeah. And quickly, more quickly winding down the ones that are already there, right? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very much three different levels. So that's you know also our view that the Scottish government should be taking a position, you know, of phase out within this decade, and therefore that means um, you know looking at these these three areas. So if you did take if the Scottish government did take a position like that, then you know even though it doesn't have the power to uh, stop you know take take those decisions in relation to the existing uh, licenses or prospective licenses what it does have is powers to look at energy use in Scotland right and do everything it can to ensure that we're using less oil and gas sort of in in, in on a trajectory that's consistent with a phase out within that um, time frame right um, so I, I, I mean, sorry just to come back to the question of this is a consultation, you know, I think we would argue that, you know, at this point <laughs> in, you know, what we know about the climate crisis, you know, it's just, it's indisputable. Um, it's indisputable that, that fossil fuels are driving the crisis. It's indisputable that they need to be phased out um, ahead of, you know, and certainly in the UK ahead of um, uh, economic, um, you know, the, the sort of natural economic decline. The question is, is how we do it. So, it's, there's arguably no justification for the Scottish government even asking the question at this stage of the presumption against new licences. It should have already made that decision. So it's quite disappointing, frankly, to see that as a question in the consultation. They should have already got there. Another element in this, which is also controversial, is the considerable emphasis on hydrogen as yeah. an alternative renewable source. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, I think, has been welcomed by the uh, the industry lobby. So what are the problems that you see with that? What that is, is they've basically incorporated the Hydrogen Action Plan, which was published in December last year. And the sort of, you know, the ambition 
that um, we're seeing in that is, you know, they're going for five gigawatts, which is 15% of Scotland's total energy usage uh, by 2030. And then a whopping great big 25 gigawatts, which is 75% of Scotland's energy usage by 2045. So that's the idea on um, the hydrogen uh, front. And along with this sort of the, the gigawatt predictions, you've got some like really quite outrageous job um, figures in there as well. So there's this huge scope of 70,000 to 300,000 jobs in the hydrogen economy by 2045. And, you know, just for reference at the upper end of that, that is considerably more than in the UK oil and gas uh, industry today. It's also around about or more than um, the numbers employed in the NHS in, um, in, in Scotland. So it's a really huge number of jobs that they're looking at that's not really very well evidenced um, at all. And the problem with hydrogen um, is that it either comes from fossil fuels, so that's what's called blue hydrogen, so it you know keeps the fossil fuel industry going. Uh, so so uh, blue hydrogen is uh, fossil fuel derived hydrogen combined with um, carbon capture and storage, which I think we'll come on to a bit later. Um, or it's derived from renewable energy, it's also what's called green hydrogen. And, you know, green hydrogen sounds great, but um, the reality is that it's about five times less efficient than direct electrification. So, you know, obviously renewables are absolutely essential to um, the transition uh, away, from, away from fossil fuels, but in and of themselves, they're also not without impact, right? on the environment and on um, uh, communities. So it would be really quite scandalous to just make four times, uh, sort of five times more than we need without seriously good justification. And, and what, what is the justification? I mean, why, uh, why would anybody even think of it? You know? Well, I think possibly the Scottish government's justification is, you know, the need to be seen to be creating some kind of industry that will sort of like for like replace the jobs um, in in the oil and gas industry. It's also, you know, it's it's being pushed by the oil and gas lobby, right? Hydrogen. But why? Why explain they that put, bit to me? Um, A, so the green hydrogen won't work. The blue hydrogen enables the oil and gas industry to keep going. And arguably the green hydrogen industry enables the oil and gas industry to keep on going as well because it won't work, right? So it's it's along with ccs it's one of these false solutions being um you know pushed by the fossil fuel industry to uh extend its own sort of lifespan and and to sort of just you know squeeze the last profits um from from the industry so well, but you, you know, I, th I think in, in i read in friends the Earth's own, own um study on this i mean you yeah. would accept some use of hydrogen right yes. for some industrial purposes yeah, yeah. so so it doesn't make sense to use hydrogen where direct electrification can work right because otherwise you're building five times as many windmills for the same amount you know for the same amount that one could do through direct electrification right and so the two areas where it really doesn't make sense to use and that the scottish government has been you know quite sort of especially with the homes and heat so homes and heating and sort of light transport are two areas where the scottish government has been actively you know supporting um hydrogen uh green hydrogen um and blue hydrogen 
Um, it doesn't make sense in these sectors because you can do direct electrification. So where it may make sense is in some heavy industry um, and for shipping and aviation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's this. So it's possible that the Scottish government's thinking on hydrogen is sort of geared towards export markets. But again, that doesn't necessarily fly because other nations, you know, where we're talking about you know, small production of um, green hydrogen for heavy industry, you know, countries will be making that in, in, in their own localities. It's not necessarily a sensible thing for the export um, market. So the whole the whole sort of hydrogen plan is 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 sort of massively flawed and needs rethinking. And, you know, sorry, this has all been a, quite a doom and gloom sort of um, <laughs> response so far, but there is one sort of, you know, positive in there that there's a line in the, in the draft strategy that makes it sound like the Scottish government are open to reconsidering their position on hydrogen for um, domestic heating. So that's, that is a good thing. And um, presumably if it doesn't work, they'll have to reconsider it anyway, basically, you know. Yes, but the question is whether it will be, you know, how late in the day do you reconsider it, you know, and how far down, you know, how much more climate pollution has gone into the atmosphere by the time we reconsider it. That's that's the problem with false solutions like hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. Is let's that do that one then. Let's, let's move on to that one then. Yeah. yeah. Carbon yeah. capture and storage, because that's also part of the hydrogen equation, as you say, on the blue hydrogen, you know. Exactly. So, exactly. you know, you know, this is the idea that you can sort of like continue to emit CO2 and then seize it out of the air and shove it under the ground or under the sea. Right. That's the basic idea. Yeah. Basically. Yes. Um, and What's it's, the problem? Well, lots of different issues with it. And one of the big ones is, you know, it, it's, it's sort of basically failed to get off the ground despite many, many decades of um, research and development supported by governments around the world, you know, US in particular, also in the UK and in the EU. It's really hasn't really got off the ground. So, you know, you've got 26 plants around the world today only 26 plants, and they are capturing less than 0.1% of global emissions at present. Of those plants, 81% of the carbon that is captured is actually being used to extract more oil as part of a process called enhanced oil recovery. You know, so it's, it is just one of these sort of fantasy techno fixes that, you know, the idea that we can just keep on doing what we're doing and nothing really needs to change uh, because we've got these sort of technological fixes, it's very much in 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 that sort of in that school. So you know, keeping oil and gas industry profits flowing. So there are no sites operating in the UK, despite sort of all these competitions over the years and and financing over the years. There are no sites operating um, in the UK. The Scottish government has, I mean, it's there's not a huge amount that's actually new in the draft energy strategy on the carbon capture and storage front. You know, these plans have been embedded in um, their climate change reduction plans for the last couple of years. And they have been, you know, heavily, heavily critiqued by four parliamentary committees who said, we don't like the look of this. You need to come up with a plan B. They've also been critiqued by the UK Climate Change Committee. So the official, the Scottish government's uh, statutory advisors on climate change who also said effectively the same thing we need to see um, a plan b in case your uh, carbon capture plans don't work and you know just to put it in perspective there by 2030 
they were looking at capturing something like a quarter of Scotland's emissions through carbon capture and storage. And by 2032, so, sorry, a fifth by 2030 and then going up to a quarter by 2032. So that was the idea in, in um, the climate change uh, plan. Last year, a report was sort of quietly um, published by the Scottish government that admitted that, you know, there was no way that carbon capture and storage in Scotland was actually going to deliver this decade. Basically, there seems to be a problem here, isn't, isn't there, of conception, you know, I mean, even if the Scottish government, and we very much hope it does, or you very much hope it does, and so do I, they do go for the sort of like, a complete halt to, to, to new gas and oil and gas projects and, and winding down the existing ones much faster. They still seem to basically want everything to go on as it is kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like we can do a bit of this and we can do a bit of that, but don't worry because it's all going to be kind of like as you know it. And I suppose maybe the argument is that a lot of things need to change. No, that doesn't make it have to change for the worse. It doesn't mean we have to sort of like all live in total, you know, austerity and, you know, but, but the way we do things, the way we consume energy, the way we live with energy and other resources has to change in a way that the Scottish government doesn't really seem to be wanting to talk about very much. Am I misinterpreting here? No, I mean, I think that's right. And I think it's also, you know, fair to say that we've got to the end of the sort of low-hanging fruit. There's no more low-hanging fruit left when it comes to carbon emissions reduction. So it's only the, the tough decisions left to make. Like, it's the nuts and bolts. How do we actually do this, you know? To, to be fair and to have some sympathy for people in positions of power having to make these difficult decisions, not everyone is going to like the decisions that are going to be made, by which I, you know, by which I partly mean, you know, the corporations who have too much sway over most governments uh, in this day and age. So, you know, they can't keep business, you know, big corporations uh, happy and meet climate targets, right? So that's, that's sort of what we're coming up yeah. against now. And I mean, yeah, so difficult decisions ahead, but I think you're right to say that things have to change, you know, on a, on a you know, systemically, but that doesn't mean things getting worse for um you know your average person necessarily so a lot of the changes that we you know a lot of the solutions that we know are essential to meeting our climate targets will actually make things better for ordinary people right so you know mass rollout of um home energy insulation for example which will reduce people's bills give people warmer homes you know like comfortable homes to live in a mass rollout and mass investment in public transport infrastructure so that communities are better connected, people are better connected, affordable public transport so that people can get around, right, as part of the modal shift away from private cars, which are, you know, a major, major problem. You know, the transport sector is, uh, you know, has been underperforming in the emissions reductions over many, many years now. So lots of the solutions to the, to the, to the climate crisis will actually make things better um, on a day-to-day -day basis for ordinary people and that's part of the argument about the just bit of the just transition right i mean just transition is about green jobs and it's not just about having new jobs for north sea oil workers you know it's a, it's a much broader thing about how you make this transition you know uh, um a positive you know experience and, and a life enhancing experience for the population at large right 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, and, and actually, it's good to sort of move on to the just transition aspect of it. So I think I mentioned um, earlier that like this is different from the previous or the existing uh, energy strategy and that it's an energy strategy and just transition plan for the energy sector. So this is the first of four sectoral just transition plans that the Scottish government um, has undertaken as part of its commitments um, to deliver a just transition. Um, and, you know, frankly, it's not much of a just transition plan. So, you know, it's a, it's, there's lots of pullout boxes in, in, in the document with nice sort of speculative jobs figures and, and, and things in them. So lots of nice words on just transition. There are a series of just transition outcomes uh, in, in the document, but no real plan to deliver on them. And I think this is, you know, when you think about the, you know, the headlines that have been um, circulating around this. So, you know, some parts of um, the press and, and, and political spectrum have interpreted this as the Scottish government taking a position already against oil and gas, right? And if you're an offshore oil and gas worker and you hear the Scottish government is putting an end date on oil and gas and you look at this document, you're not going to see anything in it that gives you comfort that you're going to be looked after, right? And that, you know, uh, the whole point about just transition is how do we avoid, so we know we need to make massive changes in our economy, in the energy that sort of the, the energy system that sort of fuels that economy. How do we avoid the horrendous and, and, and really long-term uh, damaging impacts of the transition away from, for example, the coal mining um, industry? That's what a just transition plan, so, so you're right about the wider things, about improving things for everyone as part of the transition, but it also needs to really look at the, the needs um, of, at the impact on and the needs of workers and communities who, whose livelihoods and communities are, are, are really tied to and dependent on the high carbon industry, so particularly. And on end. that specific aspect, what do you think is missing in this? What, what would you like to see added? I mean, what would you be proposing to add? I mean, it's, it, it is not, it, it isn't a just transition plan, right? It's not a plan. It doesn't say how it's going to deliver a just transition. So it's sort of, you know, to a certain extent, it's a bit back to the drawing board. Um, what it needs to do is, it, it, you know, it, it needs to go beyond the sort of speculative jobs figures. It needs to, you know, properly assess where jobs are at risk from certain policies, right? So if, you're, if your policy is to if the policy ends up to be phasing out oil and gas by whatever date, then what would the, the proposals, at least for the policies to put in place to, to ensure that workers are supported in that transition, either supported into new um, jobs through training and support schemes, or you know early retirement schemes, or job guarantee schemes. So it really needs to go into the detail of those things. And I think another part of the just transition plan really, so needs to look at different models of energy ownership. So part of the problem is the, the corporations sort of stranglehold on the industry. They've got no interest to stop <laughs> taking oil and gas out of the ground. And the, the companies that are supplying and selling energy have very little interest in home energy efficiency improvements, for example, because then theoretically they sell uh, less energy to, to, you know, to the consumer. So something like a publicly owned energy company could help sort of address those things you know a company that had uh you know public spirited 
sort of goals and aims rather than you know the bottom line um for the shareholder so there was a, a, a proposal a scottish government commitment actually to establish a publicly owned energy company that plan was for you know more of a white label company that would just buy energy mm. off suppliers and sort of bundle it up and sell it on whereas what you're talking about is something with a lot more power than that what right? we're talking about is something with more power something that can that can generate energy as well and you know, could also make interventions in, you know, support uh, home energy efficiency, for example. And so so some kind of national publicly owned energy company, but also, you know, supporting local authorities to do this kind of thing at the local level and, you know, communities um, as well. So those are some of the things that we'd want to see in there on the just transition front. I, I think it's also worth saying there's the the just transition within Scotland, but we've also got to think about the just transition at the um, at the global um, level and how this sort of intersects with the plans to move to a more circular economy. Yeah. So, yes, we have to transition to renewables. But, re you know, I think I said this earlier that, you know, renewables are not without their impact. You know, you need a lot of you need steel, like millions of tons of steel will be needed to build the wind turbines you know, for the Scott Wind project alone. And then, of course, you've also got the sort of critical minerals that go into the sort of mechanism of, of wind turbines, solar panels, all the, all the rest of it. And the the production and extraction of, of, of these materials is not without harm, <laughs> you know, um, to put it mildly. So we really need to be thinking about the impact of our transition overseas, right? So it's the pace of our transition in terms of meeting our international climate obligations and doing our fair share of that, which means moving faster. But it's also, you know, thinking about our overall demand consumption. So we, sh we shouldn't just be aiming to replace like for like in terms of energy usage. We should be really looking at ways to reduce energy usage so that we need less sources of generation. We need fewer wind turbines. We need um, fewer sol solar panels and all um, the rest of it and and trying to address um, issues in the supply chain uh, mm. for the minerals and, and, and other materials that are needed to build these things. And one sort of uh, reasonably sort of quick win on that front would be looking at the, um, the steel component. Um, and, you know, most of the steel that is used in Scotland, uh, you know, at the, at the end of its sort of initial usage, it's sent overseas for recycling and you know if we had something like an electric arc furnace here in Scotland we could be recycling and recasting our scrap steel here in Scotland to build wind turbines. Just on that international the, the, the supply chain um, element of rare earth minerals and lithium and balsa wood and all those other kind of things that are tied up in in in, in the renewables and obviously it's immensely complicated and I'm not asking you to come up with a solution, but what do you think the sort of principles of an approach to that could or should be? You know, I mean, how do you, it's a, you, know, how do you deal with that? How, how do you approach the fact that you are going to need to get balsa wood out of, you know, Amazonian rainforests or lithium out of, you know, Bolivia or wherever? You know? How do you do that in a just way? You know, what, how, what are the principles you begin to apply to do that? Yeah, so I mean, that, those are really um, big questions. And actually, we're commissioning a study at the moment um, on uh, critical minerals in, in Scotland's energy transition. So I hope that will help us sort of establish some of the 
answers um, to that. But I think part of it is about, as I said, demand reduction, right? So minimizing what we need in the first place, right, to reduce harm and recycling, obviously, as, as much as possible of all of these different materials. So you're no longer just extracting the raw materials. So reuse and recycling of materials. Those, that's got to be absolutely fundamental. Acknowledging the problem in the first place, right? So not being silent on it in the first place and incorporating this into the energy strategy, incorporating this into the circular economy bill as well, which is, is uh, coming forward um, this year. So one of the things that we are calling for in the circular economy bill is consumption-based targets. So both um, consumption-based targets for materials and also for carbon. Um, and actually the carbon one will also help with, you know, the problem of offshoring our emissions, which has also been part of what's led to the decline of, you know, heavy industry and the loss of those, uh, the jobs associated with that in Scotland. So establishing a framework that helps us think about how we reduce our use of materials, I think is a, a fundamental part of tackling um, that question. And just maybe to, to, to end, I mean, the fact that the Scottish government has taken a bit of an initiative on loss and damage at COP27, for example, and before, you know, we can argue, this is another discussion for another programme, but, um, you know, we can argue about the adequacy or inadequacies of the, the, what's been done so far on that, but there is at least appears to be a sensitivity to that issue. I, you know, it's interesting, you mentioned COP27. One of the outcomes at COP27 was a sort of an elevation of just transition into the cover, what's called the cover decision, um, and the establishment of a, of a, of a work programme on just transition and the sort of expansion of... So just transition came into the Paris Agreement initially in quite a narrow sort of framing, like narrow but important framing around protecting workers rights and that was you know on the back of many many years of campaigning by the international trade union um movement but what cop 27 did was sort of you know flesh that out a little bit um and think about just transition as more of a sort of a in terms of sort of global issues and global relationships and uh, the pace of different transition you know transitions around the world so actually i think the 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 unfccc sorry the 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 UN regime, climate regime space um, is a place where we can increasingly have that conversation and the Scottish government does engage in that space. So it's a, it, it, yes, let's have it um, there. It's also um, the, uh, the first minister committed to a feminist foreign policy for um, the Scottish government. And that I think is in the early stages of sort of consulting on what that should look like and actually I was at a really interesting workshop the other day where some you know nicely radical definitions of what that should look like were being um put forward so that's another sort of um arena that we can raise uh these issues right there's many many more aspects of this we could talk about but we've uh, already gone a bit over time mary so thank you so much uh, for for explaining all that to us and um Let's hope uh, you're, you're, you presumably will be submitting a, 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 something to the consultation, right, as Friends of the Earth? Absolutely. And we are also intending to sort of come up with um, some resources to help other people respond to the consultation if they want to as well. So we really encourage people to do that. Excellent. Yeah, well, please do let us know and we'll, you know, we have to get distributed those as far as we can help, help circulate. Thank you so much, Mary.
That's Thank the end you. of this episode of Rising Clyde. Until next time. Bye-bye. You're listening to Scottish Independence Podcast, and that was the latest episode of Rising Clyde. The host was Ian Bruce, and his guest was Mary Church from Friends of the Earth of Scotland. If you'd like to catch up with previous episodes of Rising Clyde, you'll find them on our website at uh, scottishindiepod.scot. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next Friday with our next podcast.